You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Let me ask you a personal question, and this is one of those personal questions that I ask you to answer quietly, not necessarily out loud. Um, but here's my question for you this morning. What are you passionate about? I mean truly passionate. You might feel a little awkward answering that question, but if I were to interview people that know you best, if I were to interview family members, maybe some of your close friends, co-workers, and I were to name you and say, what is he, what is she passionate about? What would those people who are close to you, how would they answer that question? They would probably think about what you talk about, what you talk about a lot, what you talk about with feeling, what you get excited about, or maybe what you get frustrated about. What are you passionate about? Maybe it's your favorite sports team, or it could be your job or a hobby, video games, your favorite celebrity, the economy, politics. Your home, your health. Could be just about anything, couldn't it? What are you really passionate about? Now here's another question to think about. How how did you get that way? How did you get that way? How did you get so passionate about whatever it is you're passionate about? As I was thinking about asking you this question, I was convicted that I should ask myself, what am I passionate about? What do I tend to talk about a lot? What do I tend to talk about with some feelings, either some excitement or sometimes frustration? And as I was asking myself that question, I began to ask myself also, how passionate am I about the plan of God, the plan of redemption. How passionate am I about the people of God, the people He's redeemed? And when I see the plan of God moving so slowly and sometimes even feeling like it's taking a step back, it's not, it's on course, but it feels that way sometimes. Whenever I see the people of God struggling to pursue Christ, Am I moved? Am I truly moved? Do I grieve, for instance, when I hear things like this? Between 8,000 and 10,000 churches in America will close this year. Does that stir me? Does it move me? To think between 8,000 and 10,000 congregations just here in America will close their doors this year. Am I moved when I understand that dozens, I looked this up, dozens of countries in our world have less than half of a percent of evangelical believers. Less than one in 200 people in dozens of countries claim Christ as their Savior. Does that affect me? Does that move me to think that there are many countries in our world with over 99% of the people 
having no claims on Christ, Christ having no claims on them. Am I moved when I hear that approximately 114 million people alive right now do not have any part of the Word of God in their heart language? 114 million. Does that move me? Does that grieve me? And to maybe bringing it a little bit closer to home, especially this time of year with all the graduations. I've been one of your pastors for a long time. And I think, I think back over the years and I think how many kids, how many kids grew up in this church? Grew up in this church. Hearing the gospel week after week. And when they leave home, they turn their back on Christ. When I think of the faces, the names, does that move me? Am I passionate about that? Do I, do I feel? Do I feel the, the, the heartbreak of that? What, what, what am I passionate about? What are you passionate about? Am I moved by the plan and the people of God in a way that brings me to my knees, that Makes me cry out to God to come and to intervene. To change these predicaments here in our fallen world. Does it make me go to the Lord and say, Lord, how can I be part of the solution? How, how can I be part of the solution to that, that problem? I want your glory to be seen, God. Am, am I moved by that? Am I passionate about that? Or am I more passionate about a sports team? Or a hobby. Or my home. Or my health. What, what are you passionate about? Today we're going to meet a man who is clearly passionate about the plan of God and the people of God. Join me if you haven't already in Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. And as our granddaughter who's visiting was asking me this morning where the book of Nehemiah was, it struck me, you know what, the book of Nehemiah is actually several books before the Psalms, but chronologically it's one of the last books in the Old Testament. The, the books aren't necessarily in chronological order in our Bible. So you find Nehemiah chapter 1, look, several books ahead of the Psalms. And as you turn there in Nehemiah chapter 1, we're going to meet the man Nehemiah, and we're going to see that he had a passion for the plan and people of God. And you can see his passion for the plan and people of God in several ways. Very simply, he cared enough to ask, he cared enough to cry, and he cared enough to pray. I appreciate Pastor Mark introducing us to the book of Nehemiah last week, giving us background, helping us see what the book of Nehemiah is about. We're going to take a step up, or excuse me, a step back. And go back and read the first three verses again today. And we're going to see that Nehemiah cared enough about the plan and the people of God to ask questions. You, you read now with me as I read aloud Nehemiah chapter 1, the first three verses. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Tislev, in the 20th year as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, 
who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. A lot of people have noticed that Nehemiah is in many ways exemplary as a leader. And he is. I would say that if you're going to read, if you aspire to leadership and you want to read one book of the Bible on leadership, I would probably recommend Nehemiah, maybe 2 Timothy. Nehemiah is clearly a godly example. But one thing I notice about Nehemiah right off the right off the beginning, is that he listened. He began with his ears, not his mouth. How many times have I been talking when I should be listening? Have you ever been in a season of your life where you're really hurting and you just wish someone would ask why you're so sad? But the person you're with just talks and talks and talks and never bothers to listen. And everything inside of you wants to interrupt and say, do you care? Do, do, do you care what I'm going through right now? Have you noticed the tears on my cheeks? Why, why do you keep talking about yourself and not asking about how I'm doing? It hurts, doesn't it? When people talk when they should be listening. But before we come down hard on callously talkative people, maybe we should admit that we've all done the same thing. I know I've done this. Or I've talked when I should have been listening. You know, if we truly care about God's people, if we really care about God's plan, then we're going to start by listening. We're going, I call it leaning in. We're going to lean in to the concerns of people in our lives. Think about family members, husbands. We are Usually exhibit A here when we aren't listening well. Are we listening to our spouses, husbands and wives? Are we listening to our kids? Kids, are you listening to your parents? Not just for obedience, but are you listening to your parents' hearts? What matters to them? In our families, in our life groups, here in our church, in our community, around the world. Are we listening to what's going on? Are we listening to the posts that the missionaries are putting up? Listening with our ears hearing what's going on in their lives and in their ministries. Nehemiah cared enough to listen. His own brother, Hanani, had made the weeks-long, weeks 800-mile arduous journey from Palestine to the winter capital of Susa, the beautiful Persian capital. Although Nehemiah was living in luxury, he lived in the palace. He lived in the palace of the most important emperor in the world at that time. Even though he lived in luxury, he cared enough to lean in and to ask his fellow Jews who had come from the promised land, how's it going back home? Even though he'd never lived there himself, that was the homeland. And he said, how's it going in Jerusalem? What did he find out? What did Nehemiah find out from these weary, dusty travelers? Well, they said that God's promised land was in ruins. They said, it's in great trouble and shame. And when Hanani and the other travelers use those words trouble and shame, they're not just talking about the physical infrastructure of the city. They're talking about more than the walls and the gates. They're talking about the people. They're talking about the people of God. 
who had survived the exile, who were back in the promised land, they said the people of God, not just the, the walls and the gates, the people of God are in trouble and in shame. And we know from reading the book of Ezra, for example, and the book of Nehemiah, that the pagan tribes around them, the pagan nations around them had mocked them and bullied them and they were living in shame and in trouble. I think one of the best summaries I read was by Kathy Keller who said, Israel is no longer a magnificent kingdom, but a weak, conquered remnant. Trouble and shame. A weak, conquered remnant. About 13 or 14 years before this, during the time of Ezra, there in Jerusalem, there had been a beginning of reconstruction of the walls. The walls had been torn down a long time ago. A long time ago when the Babylonians came. But in Ezra's day, just, we'll say 14 years before this, there had been a construction project started again where the walls had been started to be rebuilt. But then those neighboring people complained to the emperor, Artaxerxes. They said, these people are going to try to rebel against you. So Artaxerxes uh, sent a letter back and said, have them stop. And when we read in Ezra 4.23, we find that these people went in haste to the Jews in Jerusalem, and I'm quoting Ezra here, by force and power made them cease. And apparently they not only stopped the reconstruction project, but they actually tore down what had begun. Now it's hard for us in America, 21st century, to feel the weight of this. But if you study the plan of God, if we are passionate about the plan of God, we found out that God did scatter his people. It was God's sovereign plan to scatter his people for their rebellion against him. But God promised them that when they repent, he would bring them back to the land and restore them to the land. And so put yourself in the sandals of people in Jerusalem in Ezra's day. When you find out, hey, we can get started here. Let's start rebuilding the walls. And you're rebuilding the walls that have been torn down years ago by the Babylonians. And you, and you get started and you feel like there's hope. Our nation's going to be restored. Things are going to get better. That there's a, there's a sunny horizon there. And then the neighbors come and by force, mockery, bullying, not only make you stop, but tear down all that hard work you just did. And it's not just the sweat and the labor that was lost. It was hope. Listen as I read. This was an unmitigated disaster. It was actually worse in some ways than the original destruction and exile. The return of the exiles had been promised and had begun. But now it seemed as though God's, through God's word and the process of being fulfilled had been stopped by evil men who had axes to grind and didn't want to see Jerusalem reconstituted. Without a secure wall to defend the people from predators, raiders, and the surrounding powerful nations, there would be no permanent restoration of Israelite culture. Their heritage, their way of life, would cease. They would be assimilated into the surrounding cultures. Are you still listening? The law and the word of God would be forgotten as the remnant intermarried and they would all just go away. There would be no more Israelite nation 
who brings forth God's promised Messiah. This is no small matter. This is no small matter. The fact that the walls have been torn down and the gates burned a second time. Hope was dashed. And I'm sure it seemed to the people alive back then, especially the people in Jerusalem, was, I thought God promised. I thought He promised. I thought He was going to restore everything. And now everything's being torn down again. Not only the walls broken, but their hopes. Their hopes for the reestablishment of the nation, the, the continuance of the law of God. A people group, a distinct people group who would one day bring forth God's promised Messiah. Has God changed his mind? Has he changed his mind? Has he gone back on his promises? Has he just forgotten all about the people that he had redeemed out of Egypt hundreds of years before? Had he just forgotten all about his promise to restore the people? Nehemiah, although he had a nice job in a nice place, he cared enough to listen. It would have been tempting to remain oblivious. Life is good for him. Relatively comfortable. It would be tempting to not know the painful truth of what was happening to God's people. But Nehemiah obviously cared. He cared about the people of God. He cared about the plan of God, the plan of redemption. And he cared enough to ask. So what do you suppose happens next? Do you see Nehemiah 1.4? As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the, Lord, before the God of heaven. He wept. Now sometimes people think that men shouldn't cry. Now thankfully that's not as strong a cultural value as it used to be, but... You know, I remember even as a boy, you know, being told, boys don't cry. You know, leaders don't cry. You've got to be tough. But I'll tell you what, Nehemiah was a leader, and Nehemiah wept. This man wept. He wept, he mourned, not just for an hour, but for days. He cared enough to cry over Jerusalem. And as I thought about Nehemiah weeping over Jerusalem, I had this recollection of someone else who wept over Jerusalem. You know, many of the artistic representations of Jesus entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday have him smiling and waving to the crowds. But the gospel writers tell us as he came down that slope from the Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem, it says Jesus was weeping. He was weeping over Jerusalem. Because he knew later that week they'd be crying out for his crucifixion, killing him, even as they did the prophets of old. That he knew the people's hearts were not right with God. Jesus wept over Jerusalem, and so did Nehemiah. Nehemiah cared. He cared enough to weep. And thirdly, he cared enough to pray. It's interesting when you read Nehemiah chapter 1 that the first action Nehemiah took was prayer. Prayer and fasting. You know, I think about our responses whenever we see problems, whenever we see problems here in our culture. You know, they're taking our rights away. Christians aren't being treated right. You know, so what do we do? We uh, start a petition. You know, get a petition going. See if we can get some legislation going. 
Let's get some leaders together here and have some sort of a council where we can figure out how to solve this. Nehemiah could have done that sort of thing, but he began with prayer. I guess, you know, have you ever heard someone say this? I guess all we can do now is pray. Ever heard anyone say that? Ever heard yourself say that? <laughs> well, I guess all we can do now is pray. Well, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? All we can do now is pray. Well, this is our last resort. We, we've tried everything else. I guess all we have left is prayer. <laughs> Nehemiah takes that and just flips it right over, doesn't he? he the first thing, it, it wasn't prayer as a last resort. Prayer was a first resort. And if you read, now I realize we have different names for months now, but if you read the first verse of chapter 2, and he mentions that month in comparison to the month that he heard from these travelers in Jerusalem, it was four months. Four months. So for four months, Nehemiah prayed. And he tells us that he prayed day and night. He prayed day and night for four months. Prayer, anytime we hear about the people of God being in trouble, prayer should be the first thing we resort to, not the last. It's so tempting. And, I, you know, I think as a, a church leader, I get, you know, these unsolicited emails from different organizations that want pastors to try this and pastors to try that program and this gimmick. And I'm sorry, they don't call them gimmicks. <laughs> you know, come to our seminar and we'll give you three keys for a successful church this summer. You know, or whatever. <laughs> and you read all those things, and it's kind of tempting to go that direction, you know. Maybe if so, I just, maybe I just go hear this successful pastor talk. I'll learn his keys here, and, and I'll be able to bring them home to Winona Lake, and, and we'll have a successful church. Now, it's good to learn from other people. I'm not against learning from other people. But do we start with prayer? Do we start with prayer and say, Lord, these are your people. These are your redeemed people. They're part of your great plan. And Lord, as we look at your great plan and we look at your people, we see these shortcomings. We see these areas where we, we've slowed down, Lord. We, we're going backwards, Lord. Come, intervene, Lord. Come and move. Come and change. Come and rescue your people. That's what Nehemiah was doing. He, he made prayer a first resort. Let's take some time and look at his prayer here. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. This is his prayer. I said... O oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Let's just stop there. Do you see how he begins? How did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father who is in heaven. What's the next line? Hallowed be your name. What's hallowed mean? May it be holy. May it be honored. And, and Jesus says, start your prayers with adoration. With the request that God be honored. That he be glorified. And you see that here in Nehemiah's prayer. Even though he preceded Jesus' earthly ministry by 400 years. You can hear in Nehemiah's prayer, adoration. That he began admiring God, adoring God in his prayer, speaking of God's greatness. Even astonishment, our great and awesome God. 
He reflects that back to God. And he also reflects back to God God's grace, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. He's reflecting back to God what he sees about God. God, you are great and you are gracious. And then what's the next thing Nehemiah includes in his prayer? Pick up halfway through verse 6. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. And Nehemiah then includes confession of sin for himself and for his people, the people that he was associated with. We would say in our culture, our church. Confession of sin is so hard for us, isn't it? And, and as I think about that, it strikes me that we live in a victim culture. We live in a victim culture. Or if anything bad happens to us, if anything bad happens, it's someone else's fault. And we find someone else to blame or something else to blame. And, and we love playing the victim. We're never responsible for anything, are we? It's always somebody else's fault. It's always something else's fault. Politicians do it. Celebrities do it. We do it. We'll find something else, someone else to blame for our hardships. And yet Nehemiah confesses his own sin. And I think he knew that the trouble and shame that the people were going through back in Jerusalem, a lot of it was a result of their own sin and sinfulness. He realized his own sin. What else did Jesus teach us to pray? Forgive us our trespasses. Something else that's fascinating about Nehemiah's prayer, and we'll probably take a little more time on this one, was his prayer reveals that he was very cognizant, very aware of the plan of redemption that God had for his redeemed people. Nehemiah's prayer reveals that he was very aware of the word of God and what God's word says about God's plan for redeeming his people. Look at verses 8 through 10. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Okay, so now he's referring back to the books of Moses. Which books of Moses are there? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. The voices are getting louder the further we go. There's one more. Deuteronomy. Thank you very much. <laughs> we call those the books of Moses. They're sometimes referred to as the Pentateuch, the five books. Those are the books of Moses. So here in his prayer, he's alluding back to what he knew as the books of Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, and from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. I started looking for passages in the books of Moses that refer to this. And there are several, but let me just read you some from Deuteronomy chapter 30. If you want to turn there, you can. The first four verses of Deuteronomy 30. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, when you call them to mind among all the nations, the Lord your God has driven you. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. 
And he will gather you from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. That's one of several. But Nehemiah knew his Bible. He knew his Bible. He knew what the Bible said about God's plan of redemption. He knew the promises of God. He knew the character of God. And so while he was praying, he begins to reflect these back to God. You know, how, how do we pray? You know, usually we start with our own concerns, our own needs, don't we? God, I need your help right now. God, come and help me. I need your help right now. And usually we start with our own concerns. But it's interesting what Nehemiah does here. He, he begins his request by starting with God's concerns. And if you want to know how to grow in your prayer life, let me encourage you to saturate your mind with the Word of God. Saturate, saturate your mind with the Word of God. Learn everything you can. Pay attention to what's important to Him. Pay attention to the priorities of God Himself. Pay attention to the plan of God. And so you're paying attention to the plan of God, His plan of redemption for His people. And you, you weave that into your prayers. You know, we can do this in so many ways. I, one way that came to my mind is uh, going to the end and working backwards. So I, I think of like Revelation chapter 5 and, and where there's this large crowd around the throne, people from every tribe and language, people group, crying out, worthy is the Lamb. And, and you start there knowing that's where we're headed. And you say, Lord, I know that on that day we want many people gathered around the throne of your Son. We want that crowd to be large and loud crying out, worthy is the Lamb. Lord, come and redeem your people. Save many people, Lord, because we want that crowd around the throne of your Son to be large and loud. And we know the plan of God. We, we know His plan because we've seen it in His Word and we, we weave that into our prayers, pleading for God, come and work. Nehemiah knew the Word of God. He not only knows the Word of God in that sense, the plan of redemption, but he knows that he has a task to do. He knows that there's a task to do. Look at verse 11. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants, plural, who delight in to fear your name. Give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. As I was reflecting on Nehemiah going before the throne of God as a servant, referring to the other servants of God, even faithful servants, Every servant of God save one has been a promise breaker. It's been a law breaker. There is only one promise keeper. There's only one. There's only one law keeper. There's only one servant who is always faithful. And even as Nehemiah comes asking for mercy, makes us think of our need for that perfect servant, Jesus Christ, who said the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Nehemiah prayed passionately. And as you think about the grand plan of redemption, you realize how important Nehemiah's prayer is here. You realize how important it was for Jerusalem to be reestablished in that time of history. Because if the city of Jerusalem were not reestablished. If the temple were not successful. If the priesthood were not inaugurated. If sacrifices weren't reinstituted. There would be no place for Jesus to grow up Jewish. There would be no place for Jesus to be the perfect Israel. There would be no place for Jesus to be the 
final temple, the great high priest, the ultimate sacrifice. God's plan that He had promised all through the Old Testament, going the whole way back to Adam and Eve, a serpent crusher, centered on Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah, who would be born of the, a descendant of David, who would be born in Bethlehem. All these promises yet to be fulfilled in Nehemiah's day, yet to be fulfilled, required the reestablishment of this capital city of Jerusalem. A temple, sacrifices, priesthood, all of that. It was all in the context in which the Messiah was to be born and become the ultimate fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment of all those things. This is no small matter. This is not just some political quest. It's God's plan of redemption. Nehemiah knows he has a job to do. I find it interesting how humble he is in the throne room of God. <laughs> Look at verse 11 there where he talks about in the sight of this man. I mean, I just parked there for a few minutes sitting at my desk this, uh, recently. It's the, the sight of this man. What man? What's this man he's referring to? Artaxerxes. <laughs> now, if that doesn't grip you, maybe you never studied that part of history, but Artaxerxes was like the emperor. He was like the, the Persian Empire was the largest empire in the whole world back then. And, and this man that he refers to is none other than the emperor of the biggest empire in the world. And Nehemiah refers to him as this guy. <laughs> and it's as if Nehemiah is saying Artaxerxes doesn't hold a candle to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Nehemiah knows where he is when he's praying. He's before the throne of God above. He's before the throne of God above. And even the emperor is nothing. The king of the Persian Empire is nothing compared to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Nehemiah shows deference to the King of kings to the Lord of Lords in his prayer, asking for mercy. Oh, how he needs mercy. Can I go back to the opening question again? What, what are you passionate about? Now, I'm not going to play Holy Spirit in your life, but you know what? All of us probably could find an answer to that. And if you can't, have the courage to ask people to know you best. What am I passionate about? They'll probably tell you. If it's not the plan and the purposes of God, and it isn't for a lot of us. And that's really sad because living for ourselves is not what we were made for. Living for self is not what we were redeemed for. We were made for more. We were redeemed for more. We are redeemed for something more significant, something more enduring than merely pursuing what this world has to offer. We were made, we were created for God's glory. A very succinct statement is in Isaiah 43, 7, where God says through the prophet that he made us for his glory. You were made for his glory. And if you're here today as a believer, you were redeemed for his glory. I was thinking about 1 Peter 2, 9. Excuse me. Yeah, 1 Peter 2, 9 that says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You ready? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Now, a lot of times, you know, you ask someone, why did God save you? And the easy answer is, well, he loved me. That's true. You know, and, and sometimes people take that and they go with it places that aren't quite the bullseye. <laughs> I'm not saying they're, they're inaccurate, but they're inadequate. <laughs> people say, well, he saved me because he loved me, because he didn't want me to go to hell. Praise God. But you realize there's a higher reason, there, there's a, a more ultimate reason God saved you, that he redeemed you. He redeemed you so that, that's what 1 Peter 2.9 says, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of your Redeemer. That you might live a life obsessed with the glory of God. That you might be talking all the time. You're passionate about the glories of God, the excellencies of God. Talking about Him. Talking about His grace, His greatness, His plan of redemption. You say, boy, I, I just don't know if that describes me. That I'm that passionate about God and His plan of redemption and His plan for His people. How can I change? How, how can I change? How can I grow? How can I grow so that my passion for God and His plan and His people excels my passion for my favorite sports team or my hobby or my work or my house or my health, how could I grow so that, that I can live out the reason I was made for, the reason I was redeemed for? How can I find my greatest happiness in Him? I miss Jerry Bridges. He preached in this pulpit several times and was a dear friend. He had so many wise sayings. But one I can still remember him saying one day in our living room, he said, he said, the Christian life is difficult, but it's not complicated. <laughs> I thought about that. Let me ask you to think about that. The Christian life may be difficult, but it's not complicated. It, it's not complicated. There, there are certain simple things we have to think about. If I'm going to have a heart for God, if I'm going to care about the things of God, if, if His priorities are to become my priorities, if His passions are going to be my passions, if I'm going to care about the plan of God, the plan of redemption, the, the expansion of His kingdom of grace, if I'm going to care about His people, the people that He sent His Son to redeem, if I'm going to care about the things He cares about, if I'm going to have a passion for the plan and people of God, how does that happen? We need to listen to him. We need to listen to him. He gave us his word. He gave us his word so that we would know him. He gave us his word so that we would know his son, Jesus Christ. He gave us his word so that we would know his plan of redemption. Do you make that a priority in your life? Do I? If you want your heart stirred, I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but it's not complicated. Spend time in God's Word. Nehemiah knew God's Word. He, he, they didn't have a printing press yet. They didn't even have a printing press. I doubt Nehemiah had his own copy of the Bible. But boy, when he went with the other Jewish believers to hear it read, I'm sure he tried to memorize it. And he could recall it. He could recall the books of Moses. What he heard about God's plan for his redeemed people, the promises of God. He, he probably meditated on those day and night. 
Are you a person of the book? Now, some of you might say, but I'm not a big reader. Folks, we live in a blessed generation. You can get free apps on your phone. You don't even have to pay for them. Or some voice out there will read you the Bible. <laughs> Everybody can listen to God's word. Listen to God's word. Pay attention to what he says about himself. Pay attention when he talks about what he cares about. What are his priorities, his passions, his plan of redemption. Spend lots of time. You can read the Bible individually when you come to the worship service. We preach the Bible from this pulpit week after week. You're sitting there engaged. I call it leaning in. Lean in. Lean in. What can I learn here? What can I learn about God? What can I learn about his plan of redemption? What can I learn about his people, his redeemed people? You lean in. You go to a life education class. You're soaking it all in. In life group, when you're discussing the application of God's word, you're engaged. You're talking to other believers. You're listening to how they talk about God and his word. Maybe you listen to podcasts. Maybe you listen to the Bible being read as you do your workout. Whatever it takes. But you're saying, I want my mind filled with the word of God. I want to engage. I want to engage. I want to hear the heart. I want his passions to be my passions. That's what he made me for. That's what he made me for. That's what he redeemed me for. That I would declare his excellencies. If I'm obsessed with myself, if I'm obsessed with my life, I'm always thinking about me, what makes me comfortable, what I want in life. It's not that I'm aiming too high. It's that I'm aiming too low. Why would you be satisfied with that? When you can live for the glory of God. You listen, you listen to God's word. And you listen to God's people. Are you paying attention to what's going on in this world with God's people? Are you looking around when you're in the gathered gathering of the saints? Are you listening to the hurts, the concerns of the people in your life group when they're sharing their, their prayer requests, their concerns? Are you leaning in? Are you engaging with them? On the lobby, you're not rushing for the door. You're stopping to talk to people. How's it going? How can I pray for you this week? Lots of people say, I don't know what, I don't know what to say. An easy thing to say if you don't know what to say is, how can I pray for you this week? People will tell you. You engage in conversation. You're listening to the hearts of people. We've sent out multiple missionaries from this church, people that sat in the chairs you're sitting in. And they regularly post updates on how they're doing, on how their ministry is doing. Do you read them? Are you, are you listening to what's going on in the world, the concerns of the missionaries? So you listen to not only God's word, but you listen to what's going on with God's people. And then you superimpose those. You say, here's God's plan of redemption. Here's how it's going. You, you kind of put those up against one another. And you say, you know what? We're, we're not there yet. Jesus hasn't come back yet. There's a whole lot more work to do. There's a whole lot of people yet that don't know Jesus Christ. There's people here who do profess faith in Christ that are struggling. You're comparing the ideal. You're comparing the plan of God with what's actually happening. And you look at that and you, you see how it meshes or doesn't mesh. And that drives you to your knees. And you say, oh God, I, I see your plan. I, I see that you want everyone in the world to hear the name of Jesus Christ. And yet, Lord, there's 114 million people in this world who don't have the Bible in their own heart language. God, there are nations right now that over 99% of the people don't know Jesus Christ. Oh God, come. Jesus says to pray earnestly. Pray earnestly 
that the Lord would send workers into the harvest field. Do you pray that way? Lord, raise up people. Lord, if you need to call me, you call my children, you call my grandchildren. Lord, do so. The glory of Christ is more important than my comfort, my preferences. Lord, you need my finances to fund this effort. Lord, use me. Use my finances. Why am I thinking I need it all for myself? That your priorities become his priorities, and that shows up in your prayer. As you plead, as Nehemiah did, for the success and mercy that only God can give. Nehemiah had another request that we're going to look at next week where he realized he needed to take action. He needed to take action. Sometimes we need to take action. I hope you can be with us next Sunday as we move into chapter 2. We'll talk about that. But today I want to primarily challenge you. What are your passions? What are you most passionate about? And if you say, I want to change, I want to grow, just remember that growth might not be easy, but it's not complicated. Spend time listening to God's word. Spend time listening to God's people. And then pray. Pray to the King of kings and Lord of lords to come. Change you. Change his redeemed people.